the Spectator's prestigious Economic Innovator of the Year Award in partnership with Investec and now in their sixth year. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear about the success of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. Applications are now open and will close June 16th. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week, we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson, and on the podcast this week, James Heal reads his politics column on the runners and riders up for the Conservative nomination for Mayor of London. Paul Wood discusses how Saudi Arabia bought the world. And Hermione Eyre reads her arts lead on the woman who pioneered colour photography. Up first, James Heal. London faces its seventh mayoral election next year, and, yet again, the Tories are having trouble finding a suitable candidate. The publication this week at the final shortlist, Susan Hall, Daniel Korski and Mazamul Hussain, was accompanied by accusations of stitch-ups, counterclaims and legal threats between two of the defeated candidates. Sadiq Khan's aides have enjoyed watching it all play out. Labour leads in London by a whopping 40 points. So Tory victory next May is unlikely, but still not impossible. Air quality in the once smoggy capital is the cleanest it's been for centuries, but Khan has declared a pollution emergency. He's introduced new taxes on drivers as part of the year's expansion, something which his critics claim is tantamount to a war on motorists. Tories hope the expansion isn't popular enough to make him vulnerable. Even if the party does lose the next general election, a good showing in London would be seen as a prelude to recovery, as it once was with Boris Johnson. That's why picking the right person now is so important. Hall is the self-styled common-sense candidate. A blue-collar pugilist who worked in a car workshop and ran her own hair business, she spent 20 years steadily climbing the ladder of London politics. After a decade on Harrow Council, she replaced Camille Badenoch on the London Assembly in 2017 and led the Conservative grouping within two years. Her six-year stint at City Hall has been marked by frequent clashes with Sadiq Khan, packaged up in Facebook-friendly clips to delight her activist audience. Hall's policy platform is brief and uncomplicated. Scrap Khan's Euless plans on day one, more family homes, a relentless focus on law and order. Woke nonsense in the Met would be ditched and a dedicated burglary unit established in its place. She wants criminals to be frightened at the police again, to the London Tory familiar with her thinking. Hall's strengths are her grassroots support, she's known in the association, notes one undecided councillor, and the fact that she's the only one of the three candidates to have actually won an election in London. Daniel Korski, a former Cameron aide and spectator contributor, feels like a throwback to another era of conservatism. The son of Jewish-Polish refugees, he emigrated from Denmark as a student at the height of Cool Britannia and now describes himself as a tech entrepreneur. He seems the model of those citizens of the world once derided by Theresa May. An alumnus of the European Commission, Kabul Embassy and the US State Department, he campaigned for Remain in 2016 before spearheading Tom Tuganat's leadership bid six years later. The Korski campaign has churned out shiny graphics and unorthodox policies such as a curb on red traffic lights at night and a paper mile road pricing scheme to replace Euler's. He wants the mayor to control the Crown Prosecution Service so as to boost burglary prosecution rates and introduce mandatory electronic tagging for domestic abusers. His supporters note that he is now the boogie's favourite to be the Tory candidate and argue that he's challenging jaded perceptions of what it means to be conservative in the capital. Before, people were saying, nobody knows him, says one Team Korski member. They're not saying that now. Mazamal Hussein KC is the wild card, positioning himself as the epitome of the London dream. Born in a Bangladeshi mutt hut, he spent his childhood beneath a tin roof as the youngest of eight siblings. He obtained his first pair of shoes at the age of 16. Five years later, he arrived in Britain, teaching himself English as he studied law. Murder, terror and drug-related cases are among those on his CV, 
More unconventional ones include successfully appealing a conviction for Nazi-style salutes at the 2012 Olympics. Hussein took silk in 2019 was regarded as a novice in Tory circles. Who was the most common reaction to his surprise inclusion in the final three, attributed to an impressive interview with the London party board. Can he replicate what he has in a courtroom in a hustings too? Asked one councillor. For Hussein, London is the most magical place in the galaxy. He wants to step up, stop and search, crack down on drill rat gangs and target Sadiq Khan for effectively decriminalising offences such as burglary. Not all London lawyers are lefties, jokes a supporter. Three very different candidates then, but they all agree on three things. Crime, Yulez and Khan's record of delivery. On this last point, Tories of all persuasions seem to be united. Andy Street and Andy Burnham have done immeasurably better, says one MP who opted not to enter the race. Most Tories believe that turning the contest into a referendum on Khan is their best chance, helped by the change to first-past-the-post voting. They cite private polling that shows him double digits behind his party in London. But Labour has a similar opportunity to turn the election into a verdict on Johnson, Truss and the current economic climate. Korsky and Hall both backed October's mini-budget. We're in a cost of living crisis made in Downing Street, says one London Labour source. Their shortlisting process has been a circus, more of the same approach that we've seen in the past 13 years. The message is clear. Vote for Khan to keep the Tories out of London. The symbiotic relationship between the two power bases is acknowledged by both sides. How then can the Tories exploit it to their best advantage? They could make the Met Commissioner solely accountable to the Mayor, not allowing Khan to pin the blame on the Home Office. But given the weakness of Tory support in the capital, the party seems unable to decide whether to give its full backing to whichever candidate is chosen. The support for Sean Bailey last time was pretty muted, says the Tory figure. No one thought he really had a chance, so they didn't get involved. The Tories have to allow their candidates to launch one or two blows on Downing Street, as Johnson often did as mayor during the coalition. Letting go of control is against the instincts of the party machine, but if a great retrenchment is to take place, the Tories will need their redoubts. Without London, things could look very bleak indeed. That was James Heal. Next, Paul Wood. What do you get for the man who has everything? Saudi Arabia's ruler Mohammed bin Salman is said to have a $500 million yacht, a $450 million Leonardo painting and a $300 million French chateau. Now he's acquired a new bauble, American golf. Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, the PIF, has negotiated a controlling interest in the main US golf tournament, the PGA Tour, merging it with a rival league the fund already owns, Live Golf. There was an appalled reaction from Hatija Chinges, fiancé of the murdered Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was allegedly killed on MBS's orders. She called it the worst face of sports washing, telling journalists it shows there are no limits to what money can buy. Sports washing is part of something the Saudis have been doing for years, checkbook diplomacy, though now they have a lot more money to spare and are splashing it around much more aggressively. Sarah Leigh Whitson of Democracy for the Arab World Now, the organisation founded by Hashoji, told me the deal makes no sense in purely economic terms. She says it's really important to know how much of a premium the Saudis have paid. This is a political move. In fact, the Financial Times estimates that the Saudis will pump $3 billion into their new purchase. That translates into some astonishing rewards for individual players. Some already on the Saudi payroll are reportedly getting $200 million a year. But those who climb into bed with the Saudis are like Demi Moore in that terrible film Indecent Proposal. The money is too much to resist and so they take it but end up feeling dirty. The PGA's rationalisations sound especially desperate because only last year they invoked Saudi Arabia's alleged role in 9-11 
to stop players being poached by Liv. The PGA Commissioner, Jay Monaghan, implied that anyone who joined it was taking dirty money. I would ask any player that has left, have you ever had to apologise for being a member of the PGA Tour? Now, deliciously, the 9-11 families are accusing him of greed and hypocrisy, accepting billions of dollars to, as they put it, cleanse the Saudi reputation. Monaghan explained lamely, circumstances do change. He squirmed his way through an interview on the Golf Channel, saying, as we sit here today, you know, I, I, think, I think it's important to, you know, reiterate that um, I feel like the move that we've made and how we move forward is in the best interests of our sport. Greg Norman, the former golf champion who runs Live, has already moved forward, as they say. Asked last year about Hashodji's murder, the body dismembered with a bone saw, Norman said, look, we've all made mistakes. It's not just golfers. Footballers are reportedly being paid more than $200 million a year each to join the Saudi Football League. The PIF has bought stakes in entertainment, banking, technology, social media. It's the largest shareholder in Nintendo, gave $3.5 billion to Uber when it was a startup, has big pieces of Amazon, Facebook and Google, and owns Newcastle United. No doubt this is partly MBS's wish to move the economy away from oil. But Whitson says that the kingdom's billions have never been deployed so strategically and pointedly into Western economies. Most significant of all is the effort to buy up former government officials. A report in the Washington Post found that hundreds of high-ranking retired US military officers had gone to work for the Gulf monarchies, including a clutch of generals and admirals. There are similar claims about former bureaucrats and elected representatives. Whitson tells me it completely distorts the decision-making of people in office. They're counting their future paychecks. Everyone has seen what Saudi Arabia's rates are. The most famous recipient of Saudi largesse is Jared Kushner, President Trump's son-in-law. Six months after leaving the White House, he got $2 billion for his new private equity firm. To make the payment, MBS overruled the PIF's own advisory panel, which assessed the firm's operations as, quote, unsatisfactory in all aspects. It's possible, then, that Kushner didn't get the money for his unrivaled financial genius, but because of what he did for the Saudis in office. Donald Trump is famously touchy about people cashing in on his name, at least without giving him a cut. So there's naturally a lot of speculation about whether he, too, might be doing business with the Saudis, Court documents have revealed that the Saudis own 93% of Live Golf, and I've heard that Trump owns the other 7%. Now, this may be just the usual Trump related conspiracy theorising, as there's no hard evidence. That, however, isn't surprising, as Live's finances are obscure, despite it appearing to have several billion dollars worth of share capital. The company, which has offices in London, couldn't be reached. Either way, Trump has benefited because Liv has chosen to play several matches at Trump golf clubs, with more to come. He greeted news of the Saudi takeover of the PGA Tour with the block capitals he used to reserve for bombing Syria or other triumphs. Quote, Great news from Liv Golf, a big, beautiful and glamorous deal for the wonderful world of golf. Congrats to all. Close quotes. All of this has emboldened MBS, who's been steadily creeping back into international favour since Hashodji's murder. 
More dissidents are being jailed. One woman, a PhD student at Leeds University, was given a 34-year sentence simply for publishing tweets calling for reform in Saudi Arabia. It may be hypocritical to attack golfers while US and British policy is still to sell arms to Saudi Arabia. President Biden was forced to give MBS a humiliating fist bump at a meeting last year. Meanwhile, the Saudis are making even more money, with sanctions on Russia continuing to affect oil supplies. The PIF is said to be worth around $650 billion now. According to some estimates, it could be the world's biggest state investment fund by the end of the decade, with $2 trillion worth of assets. The Saudi spending spree will continue, and it won't be only the men in plaid trousers who face difficult moral choices. That was Paul Wood. And finally, Hermione Eyre. When colour photography first came in at the start of the last century, it met a surprising amount of resistance from distinguished photographers. But Madame Yvonne loved it, owned it, revelled in it. She invested in a new Vivex repeating back camera, exhausting her fellows at the Royal Photographic Society in 1932. Hurrah, we are in for exciting times. Red hair, uniforms, exquisite complexions and coloured fingernails come into their own. If we are going to have colour photographs, for heaven's sake, let's have a riot of colour. But what she went on to create was far better than that. In her classical series Goddesses from 1935, she controlled colour like a Renaissance master, painting with it, creating atmosphere and character. Her immortal women are by turns vengeful, erotic, sad and gay, as emotionally radiant as a Paul and Pressburger composition, as camp as a Pierre et Gilles shoot. Her goddesses come to us familiar from their inheritors. Never mind that the series, which boasts a duchess, a countess, a baroness, umpteen ladies and a Mitford sister, was sometimes problematic for critics, one of whom called it a posh pit of decadence in The Guardian when it was last shown at the National Portrait Gallery in 1990. The goddesses are now the centrepiece of the headline show Yvonne, Life and Colour at the newly reopened National Portrait Gallery, which repositions her as a serious contender in 20th century photography. They've even taken away her Madame. I rather liked its feminine pomp, though I suppose it does smack of fortune teller. She definitely used Madame, curator Claire Freestone told me, she walked me around the show. But on balance, things she had full control over were primarily Yvonne. She certainly never used Cumbers, her maiden name, though Freestone points out that her father's commercial printing firm, Johnston and Cumbers, where she toured large vats of ink as a girl, meant there was colour in her DNA. The idea of the goddesses was sparked by an Olympian-themed fancy dress ball in aid of the blind at Claridge's in 1935. Opportunism, vital in a photographer, was one of her strengths, and she caught her big fish with flattery, casting Diana Mitford as Venus and Margaret Sweeney, later the Duchess of Argyle, as Helen of Troy, while her friends and collaborators took the more challenging parts. Good old Dolly Campbell, wife of Yvonne's cousin, the speed freak Sir Malcolm Campbell, had her cheeks trapped with glycerine as Niobe weeping for her lost children in homage to Man Ray's tears in 1934. This was rather Cassandra-like of Yvonne, as Dolly's son, Donald Campbell, would indeed die dramatically in 1967, attempting to break a speedboat record. Mrs Edward Mayer, Madeleine Himmelsterner, an Estonian émigré with whom Yvonne and her husband Edgar Middleton played bridge at home in the temple, was selected for Medusa. In the famous print, she stares existentially into the camera's black abyss, wired toy snakes in her hair, python skin around her neck, lips painted a dull purple skin, sickly green under filters, exactly the cold, voluptuary and sadist that Yvonne wanted. As Venus in pearls, Diana Mitford, then Mrs Brian Guinness, wears a distant, soulful expression, 
with an air of unreachability that was fitting, perhaps, as she was just then falling out with everyone over her imminent marriage to the British fascist, Oswald Mosley. The atmosphere of the photograph of the future Duchess of Argyll is frankly ominous. The avoidant eyes, the vermilion lips, the grey and shadowy tones. The camera loves her and she seems to requite the feeling, but in 1963 that would be turned against her by her husband, the Duke's deposition of her private sexually explicit photographs in court. Although these days, it's apparently not acceptable to mention this, you'd not know it from the catalogue, only to do a bit of hand-wringing, as the catalogue does, about the status and treatment of women in society at the time. Far more cheerful is the portrait of Gertrude Lawrence, then a huge star as guitar-strumming Talia, the muse of comedy. Negatives were expensive, so Yvonne used only two or three per sitting. But for Lawrence, she exposed eight. Yvonne was always experimenting in her Barclay Square studio with coloured cellophane's deliberately underexposed negatives. However, her processors, Vivex in Wilsdon, sometimes sought to correct these effects. Yvonne stressed in heavy handwriting that nothing was to be changed and the partnership settled. Studio assistants were sent on property-finding missions, a stuffed bull's head from Camden Town for Europa to cuddle, etc. By nature droll, Yvonne used this as material for her autobiography in camera. She wore her talent lightly, clever enough not to be too clever. With puckish wit, Yvonne placed a rogue goddess among the distinguished faces, a close-up of a blue bottle resting on some lilies. This, apparently, is Metis, Zeus's scorned first wife. Metamorphosis was second nature to these women, as they exchanged maiden names for married names, titles, pseudonyms, and yet new names on remarriage. Like true Olympians, the goddesses had a devastatingly high divorce rate, and keeping track of who is who is a perilous course. Sheila Chisholm, the sensuous Penthesilea, shot through with arrows and enjoying it terribly, was by marriage twice a lady and once a princess. Lady Alexandra Haig, daughter of Field Marshal Douglas Haig, became Alexandra Howard Johnson on her first marriage and subsequently as Hugh Trevor Roper's wife, Lady Dacre. Cersei is so much simpler. For this MPG retrospective, hitherto unseen negatives have been beautifully hand-printed by artist Katoyan Dalat Chashi, a process involving three colour plates laid on top of one another and a lot of gelatine washed off by amber light. Et voilà, a long-lost goddess joins the others, Dorothy Gisborne, a psyche wearing toy box wings and looking rather glum. Her husband, like Yvonne's, had recently failed to get elected as a Liberal MP. The presiding goddess here is obviously Hecate, an older lady wreathed in soft grey net, thought for years to be Dorothy, Duchess of Wellington, wife of the seventh duke, a poet whom Yeats adored. She has now been identified as Maud, Duchess of Wellington, wife of the fifth duke. The striking triple portrait of her once lost has been found for this show and it's a significant addition. In her younger years, Maud had sat for Sargent and de Laszlo, and in photographing her, Yvonne, in a sense, receives the baton from these painters, taking the evolution of portraiture forward into the 20th century. When she exhibited a few of the goddesses as works in progress at her studio in Berkeley Square in 1935, they were hailed in the Times as among the best direct colour photographs we have ever seen. Yvonne went on to make important works in colour, such as George Bernard Shaw, with roses and cream in his cheeks, up close, his right as hand, soft and unlined, from 1937. She got a lot of stick in that conventional era for the daring blue light outlining his left cheekbone. But Yvonne insisted in a lecture to the Professional Photographers Association Congress in 1935 that her motto was be original or die. However, 1939 was an annus horribilis in which everything changed. Her husband, Edgar Middleton, died of cancer, aged 44. The Vivex colour processing plant closed due to the war and was never revived. And Yvonne was bombed out of her flat in Dolphin Square. After the war, her work returned to black and white, with her drive to innovate finding its expression in monochrome solarisation. She continued to pull off brilliant coups, such as going to Ethiopia, aged 72, to photograph Emperor Haile Selassie, and revealing a sweet side to him in the portrait by getting his pet chihuahua to peep out from the cushions on his throne. In her memoirs, 
She recounts that she mewed like a cat. She arranged for her archive to go to Roy Strong at the National Portrait Gallery in the 1970s, and after her death in 1975, her work found enduring cult popularity. The artist Paula Rego called her style homely surrealism, but sincere. I love it. Photographer Mario Testino collects her work. Devotees include John Galliano and Tilda Swinton. But nothing in her long and distinguished oeuvre, not even a nymph like Judy Dench from 1961, as her work from the 1930s, when she created such a powerful evocation of a world that was about to vanish. A true twilight of the goddesses. And that's everything for this week. If you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join us again next week. Bye.